Hey guys, welcome to episode 24 of the Mysterious Benedict Society Read Aloud Podcast Book 2. Today we'll be reading chapter 24, but first a recap of chapter 23. In the beginning of this chapter, we found the children looking at the cave in the mountain where they knew Mr. Benedict and Mr. Curtin were inside of. The children were tricked into thinking Mr. Curtin was Mr. Benedict and got trapped with Mr. Benedict in the cave. Mr. Curtin informed them that he had been tracking their progress, so he knew exactly where they were and had planned to capture them, thinking they knew where the ducks' work would be. But they didn't. Mr. Curtin created a new noise-canceling technology that amazed the children and made them quite more scared of him. He also explained how he was going to become Mr. Benedict so he could have all the privileges that Mr. Benedict has. Soon after Mr. Curtin was done explaining, Mr. Benedict said he would show his brother where the ducks work was if he wouldn't hurt them. And so he did, and it was on the ceiling on the stalagmites. It's like moss, like glowing moss, it said. Um, So that's a summary, but I wanted to say thank you to Ashley before I start the episode for her very sweet voice message sent to me. I really enjoyed it. Okay, let's start the episode. Have fun. Chapter 24. Old Friends and New Enemies The hours that followed were wretched ones indeed. Mr. Benedict and the children were compelled to watch as Mr. Curtin and S.Q. diligently scraped Ducksworth from every surface within reach. It was Mr. Curtin who had brought the black metal boxes stacked beneath the table, the children discovered. Although he had no idea the plant's appearance or location, he had long been a scholar of the Ducksworth legends, and some years ago had secured, in a dark corner of the world, a scrap from an ancient book offering instructions for transport and preservation of the fragile plant. Evidently, nothing more elaborate was required than darkness, moisture, and a certain degree of heat and Mr. Kern had devised special containers to meet these conditions. Whenever he or SQ opened a metal box to slide in another layer of the precious moss, steam wafted out of it from a modern clay witch's cauldron. To think, said Mr. Benedict, watching his brother stretch to reach a high patch of ducksworth on a stagalamite. If we had worked together with Audra, we might have accomplished a great deal. We each knew things the other did not. And still do, said Mr. Curtin, standing on the seat of his wheelchair, to reach the ducksworth more easily. The wheelchair, in response to an unseen signal, eerily circled the staglamite as if it had a mind of its own. But as you've now witnessed, I'm perfectly capable of making you reveal the things I desire to know. I see no advantage in working together, as you put it. The advantage, Mr. Benedict began, would lie in... I do not care to hear any more of your opinions, interrupted Mr. Curtin, peeling away a strip of slimy moss. Foolish opinions distract me, and I have no time for distraction. You do seem rather in a hurry, Mr. Benedict observed. What did I just tell you about your opinions, Mr. Kern snapped. Once again, you betray your simplicity, Benedict. How do you think I have avoided capture if not from choosing to never tarry, never to linger? Take the present case. Even if I did not receive word from Miss Conzombe, I fully intend to leave this island today. And abandon the Ducksworth? Mr. Benedict asked, sounding mildly surprised. Again, Benedict, simplicity of thinking. I intended to leave SQ, of course, to continue searching for it, while I investigated the matter elsewhere. One way or another, I would have found the Ducksworth, I assure you. At this, SQ paused in his work. From his stunned expression, it was clear he had no inkling of this plan to leave him alone on a deserted island. As usual, however, Mr. Kern went on, I have achieved my goals in the most efficient manner possible. Still, it never serves to stay in one place for long. Therefore, I proceed, as always, with due haste. If you're such in a hurry, Kate put in, why don't you force us to help you gather the ducksworth? Mr. Kern utterly his screechy laugh. 
I have quite enough help, thank you, Miss Wetherall, and I should have quite enough ducks work even if I were compelled to leave most of it behind. No, I believe it's better if you remain locked up. I can't see why you don't just dump us off this mountain, Kate said. Now that you have your stupid plant, we're not much used to you. Her friends squirmed uncomfortably at these words, even though they knew Kate was trying to create an opportunity for escape. But Mr. Kern, who also knew what she was up to, subtly had never been Kate's strong suit, only screeched up again. On the contrary, you may be useful indeed. I've been giving the matter some thought, you see, and the fact is that once I have proper distillation of the Ducksworth, it should be simple enough to keep you asleep, helplessly, quietly asleep, except on occasions I deem appropriate. Say, whenever I require more information, Benedict has already proven himself quite weak when you children are concerned. Well, I suppose that isn't the dumbest idea you've had, said Kate, just as she'll pluck from Mr. Kern's suggestion had made her feel sick with dread. There are rather a lot of us to keep hidden, though. Do you have some kind of shrinking machine, too? Properly stacked, Miss Weatherall, I should think you would all fit nicely in a single lock closet, Mr. Kern pursed his lips, pretending to consider. But you're right, it may prove too much of an inconvenience. I need to reflect upon it. What do you say, Benedict? Would you prefer to be gotten rid of entirely, or to sleep your life away in a closet? I am partial to long naps, Mr. Benedict said, but I've never gotten rid of before, so it's difficult for me to say. Mr. Benedict's impeccable calm seemed to ruffle Mr. Curtin, whose smirk faded, replaced by an icy stare. Then it's lucky you will not be the one who chooses. Now do be quiet, all of you. I've had enough of your distractions. I hate to interrupt my work again, but I assure you, and this is a promise. The next person who utters a word will receive my full attention. There was no doubt in Mr. Curtin's seniority on this point, or what he meant by full attention, and the remaining hours of the night were spent in awful silence, under threat of those shiny silver gloves, with no sounds at all save for those of Mr. Curtin and S.Q. working away. Rennie's mind was also working away, and furiously at that, but to no good effect. He had tried countless times to think of means of escape, tried and failed. And meanwhile, he was imagining all sorts of things he would prefer not to imagine, such as the terrible reunion of Mr. Curtin and his whisperer, and what would happen to Rhonda, Miss Permal, and all the others with nosy questions Mr. Curtin would never tolerate. Nor, unfortunately, did Rennie's imagination stop there. Instead, it would wandering bleakly on, out of Mr. Benedict's house and into Stonetown, where Rennie saw a crew of ten men stalking in the slumbering streets, every last resident having been sent to sleep by a proper distillation of Mr. Curtin's Ducksworth. Try as he might, Rennie could not avert his mind's eye, and so he saw with the frightful clarity the ease with which Mr. Curtin's men carried all those away dared to oppose their master. There would be no struggles, not even a cry of complaint, just a city waking up in the morning with no one less opponent of Mr. Curtin. Mr. Curtin would have what he always wanted. He would be in absolute control. All that was required was that he change his name to Nicholas Benedict. Most people would never guess what was happening. The children would be out of the way by then, of course, that was much certain. The question was what Mr. Curtin was going to do with him. Rennie couldn't think of any possibilities that didn't make him sweat. His only hope, however slim, was that Milligan might save them, and as night drew nearer to morning, Rennie clung to it in increasing desperation. When Mr. Curtin mused aloud that it was taking his ten men much too long to track down escape number two, the woman, he called her, and sent SQ out of the cave with the radio to contact them, Rennie tensed in expectation. Perhaps Milligan was waiting outside and would ambush him, but SQ returned with the report that radio waves were silent. This news caused Mr. Curtin to frown his brows suspiciously, and it gave Rennie some reason to nurse his fragile hope a little bit longer.
But that hope fell apart completely just before dawn, when McCracken came limping into the cave. Kate let out a gasp, then burst into tears, for the tin man's appearance could only mean one thing. The other children looked at him, one another, in despair. And Mr. Benedict, his own eyes brimming as he heard Kate's devastated sobs, reached out to comfort her, then slumped sideways against the staglamite asleep. McCracken observed all this with amusement as he limped over to await Mr. Curtin, who at the sound of his approach retreated, in perfect creepy silence, to the other chamber. S.Q. had likewise disappeared, but the tin man stared shrewdly at a nearby staglamite as he called out, "'Code seven, Mr. Curtin. No need for an ambush.' In a patronizing tone, he added, "'S.Q., I'll remind you that Code 7 means all clear. Your boot tips are plainly visible at any rate.' As S.Q. emerged from his hiding place looking sheepish, Mr. Kern rocketed into view at such a speed that his wheelchair seemed certain to slam into McCracken. He skidded to a stop at the last instant, however, and McCracken acknowledged his entrance with an admiring bow. If Mr. Kern had actually struck him with the chair, McCracken would have been sent flying, and as a tenman, he had great esteem for impressive displays of force.' It was lucky for McCracken he hadn't been sent flying, for he was already in a terrible state. He was using his necktie as a sling for an injured arm. His face was bloody and streaked with soot, his elegant suit was tattered and scorched, and his briefcase positively bristled with tranquilizer darts. His expression, however, revealed an obvious satisfaction, and when he spoke it was in his usual calm, deceptively pleasant way, as if he'd simply come to report on the weather. "'We ran into a spot of trouble,' McCracken said, in response to Mr. Curtin's look of disapproval. He nodded to the children. "'Where'd you find the chickies?' "'They found me,' Mr. Curtin said coolly, "'having stolen my salamander, which was in your care, and I've captured and held them, which was more, apparently, than your imbecile crew could manage. Do remind me why I pay you?' McCracken grinned, revealing a number of missing teeth. "'We're good for your morale. Anyway, didn't you have to deal with Milligan?' "'Benedict's agent? He's on the island?' "'Oh, so they didn't tell you,' said McCracken, lifting an eyebrow. Mr. Kern shot the children with a venomous glance. "'They did not. Milligan, eh? I suppose his involvement explains why I haven't heard from Jackson or Jilson.' "'No doubt,' McCracken agreed. "'But you need to worry about further interference. Milligan's been dealt with.' "'I take it you dealt with him yourself,' said Mr. Kern, looking at the tin men up and down. "'You're in a pathetic condition.' Not just me. It took a lot of us. I must say Milligan was like no one I'd ever fought. Fast as a tiger and clever as a fox. But he never really stood a chance, really. The man had an absurd reluctance to do anyone real harm. You should have seen the lengths he went to avoid killing Crawlings, who was doing everything he could to dash him to pieces. Once I discovered that weakness, it was only a matter of time until I finished him. "'So you did finish him?' Mr. Curtin asked. "'Skip to the end, McCracken, and you, S.Q., stop standing there like a lamppost and get back to work.' "'The end was rather a disappointment,' said McCracken, as S.Q. hurriedly resumed scraping and packing. "'Our fight had taken us high up on the middlemost mountain, where I had backed him onto a cliff at the edge of a ravine. "'The other men were out of commission by this point, and he was enduring a shocking number of hornet stings rather than come out of behind a boulder. "'He was using to shield himself.' But I was gradually moving into position to finish him off, and when he realized this, he chose a painful, less painful end. He jumped. Rennie put her arm around Kate's shoulders, but she scarcely noticed. She had stifled her tears now, mastering herself in order to listen to McCracken's account. She stared at the tinman, radiating fury. Now, I didn't see his body, McCracken admitted. My flashlight was shattered by then, but in the moonlight I could see a good fifty feet down, so he fell at least that far, and he was in a sorry condition to begin with. I doubt he lived, but if he did, he was surely wishing he hadn't. A fall like that would have broken every bone in his body. 
"'You're going to wish you didn't live,' Kate snarled, lunging forward. She spoke and moved with such ferocity that everyone in the cave flinched. Everyone but McCracken, who chuckled as Kate's handcuffs, still locked in the metal loop, jerked her off her feet. Rennie and Sticky grabbed onto her, holding her back for fear she'd break her arm trying to get at McCracken. "'I've come to see what you prefer to do now,' said McCracken, turning back to Mr. Curtin. "'I still need to track down number two, but first I shall gather the men. Matrina, too, I suppose. I saw her and Garrett in the meadow. Milligan waylaid them on their way back to the village.' Mr. Curtin frowned. "'I thought you said he avoided doing real harm.' And so he did, but he left everyone unconscious, and Crawlings had broken some bones that would heal better if I had to lift him properly. If you don't care about that, I can just toss him into the salamander with my good arm. Or, if you prefer, I can wait for the other to regain consciousness and give me a hand. Sharp and Garrett appeared to be coming around. They floated their eyes a bit when I kick them, and I'll predict they'll be awake soon. But I thought I should let you decide. I knew you hoped to leave before noon today. Mr. Kern received this news with considerable annoyance, but he appeared determined not to grow vexed. Take SQ, he said briskly, and hurry up. We're almost ready to load. SQ started to set down the middle box he'd been carrying. No offense, McCracken said, smiling at SQ in a way that showed he did, in fact, mean offense. But I think it ought to be you who helps Mr. Curtin. As I said, Crawlings has broken bones. I wouldn't do if it dropped. SQ, greatly offended, dropped the metal box on his foot. Fine, Mr. Curtin said as SQ hopped around, moaning and clutching his foot. I'll come. SQ, stop prancing and get back to work. McCracken had set down his briefcase and was probing at a loose tooth with his fingertips. He pulled it out, examined it with mild curiosity, and slipped it into his pocket. There's something else, Milligan told the children that some friends were coming for them. Snakes and dogs, muttered Mr. Curtin. Did he say who? It can't be an official rescue party or I've been notified. I assume no one radioed while you were outside. I did hear from bludgeons. Evidently, Rhonda Kanzambe had sent the pigeon back with the note. She claims do I have identified the person you seek and begs for a few more days to locate him. A desperate ploy, said Mr. Curtin with a gesture of dismissal. I've already located what I seek, but you have no word on these people who are coming? No, and Milligan didn't mention any names, but we know where their boat will land if he hasn't already. The only decent place is that southern eastern bay. If you like, once my men are up, we can drive over... Mr. Curtin waved at him silent. Any confrontations can wait, McCracken, and it would be best to avoid them altogether. What I want from you is an assurance that our escape prisoner cannot contact these people and tell them where Benedict is. Well, said McCracken, if she hasn't already met up with them, that is, if they haven't already sent a rescue party across the island. Most unlikely, said McCracken. The bay will have an exceptionally tricky tide last night, McCracken. I know a thing or two about tides, you see, and I doubt any craft could have navigated to the shore before now. Very good, McCracken said. Then I assure you we'll capture number two before she causes any trouble. I suspect she's hiding in the woods by the village. With the wind's help, we should have no trouble burning the woods and smoking her out. You'd had better be right, Mr. Curran said tersely. The conversation then shifted to the wheelchair, which Mr. Curran was loath to leave behind. Because of his injured arm, McCracken wouldn't carry both the chair and his briefcase down the steep goat path to the salamander. Yet the chair was too heavy for Mr. Curtin, or indeed for any but the strongest of men to carry that far. McCracken pointed to that Mr. Curtin wouldn't actually be using the wheelchair much, to which Mr. Curtin replied that McCracken didn't use his brain much either, but still preferred to keep it with him, and so the discussion continued. Kate, meanwhile, was rifling suspiciously through her bucket, trying to find anything that might help. At length, she muttered, I can't figure out how we're going to manage this. You mean how we'll escape, said Rennie in an undertone. I can't either. 
I didn't mean that, Kay replied, as if surprised the very notion. Of course we'll escape. We will, Sticky asked hopefully. How? Oh, we'll think of something, Kay whispered, which was not quite specific a plan as Sticky had hoped for. What I'm wondering is how we'll meet up with Milligan and find number two before those creeps do. How will we rescue her? Wait, you think Milligan is alive? Constance whispered. Obviously. I mean, I didn't think so at first, but then I realized Milligan would never jump to his death, not when we were so in danger. He must have had something else in mind. Probably he just hadn't been able to find us. He told us to go to that bay forest after all. That's where he'd have gone to look for us. Rennie was less optimistic than Kate, but she did have a point. Let me get this straight. We're chained up in a cave with no idea what Mr. Curtin's going to do with us. And your biggest concern is how we're going to rescue number two? Exactly, Kate whispered. I just wanted to be clear on that, said Rennie, and though he only had a small impulse to smile, this was nonetheless the best he'd felt in some time. I think the place to start would be to rescue ourselves, Kate. I know, but we need more time. If they're going to burn these woods... We have more time than they think, Constance put in. They'll have trouble burning anything. It's getting damp outside, misting or drizzling. Don't look at me like that. You know I can sense these. Ask you, barked Mr. Curtin. The children flinched and looked up to see him glaring at them. If any one of our prisoners speaks again, any single one of them, SQ, you will report it to me on my return, and they will suffer the consequences. That's an order, understood? No one is to speak. I will have none of this murmuring among themselves. Yes, sir, said SQ. He cleared his throat. And, er, uh, sir, may I suggest that McCracken carry your wheelchair while I carry his briefcase? Just down at the salamander, I mean. The two men stared at SQ, then looked at each other in surprise. Out of the mouths of babes, grunted McCracken. I'll steer my chair as far as the path, said Mr. Curtin already moving. Then we can't exchange burdens. He glided swiftly away up the passage. With Miss Kraken limping along behind him, with never a word of thanks to SQ, nor even a glance of acknowledgement, for having made an amazingly practical suggestion that the two of them worked together. Still smarting from McCracken's insult and Mr. Kern's cold treatment, S.Q. Bedellian had only returned to his work when Mr. Benedict spoke to him. No one had seen Mr. Benedict wake up, and in fact he spoke now in a careful, measured tone, with a very sleepy quality, as if perhaps he hadn't woken at all. S.Q., Mr. Benedict said in his strange, solemn maneuver his tone, I know you have much to do, but if you can spare just a moment, these handcuffs are chafing me again. S.Q. turned toward Mr. Benedict with a look of distress. Oh, no, Mr. Benedict, you shouldn't have spoken. Don't you realize I have to report you to Mr. Curtin now? It was a direct order, you know. You'll be punished. Mr. Benedict fixed Eskew with a sleazy gaze. I realize that, Eskew, he said, still in that slow, sleepy tone. And it's quite all right. You must do what you must do, my friend. I bear you no ill will. Plainly relieved, Eskew smiled, then stifled a yawn. Still, said Mr. Benedict, these handcuffs, as I said, are chafing my wrists more terribly, just as the way they always do. S.Q. stared at him, not in hesitation or even with suspicion, but as if it were taking him a long time for Mr. Benedict's words to register in his brain. The children, bewildered, said nothing. They dared not even to breathe. They could see Mr. Benedict was up to something, even if F.Q. couldn't. S.Q. yawned again, but didn't take his eyes from Mr. Benedict. You are very tired, aren't you, S.Q.? said Mr. Benedict. S.Q. continued to stare. After a moment, he nodded dumbly. I really am, he whispered. I know you are my friend, said Mr. Benedict, and so am I. You should sit with me a moment and rest. But first, please unlock my handcuffs, just as you've kindly done before. I would like to rub some feeling back into my wrist. 
And then, to the children's profound amazement, Escubabellion walked over to Mr. Benedict and unlocked his handcuffs. At first, Mr. Benedict did not stir. He only thanked Eskew and rubbed his wrist gratefully. Then he patted the ground beside him. "'Sit for a moment,' Mr. Benedict said. "'For a moment,' intoned Eskew, his eyelids heavy. His shoulders slumped. He sat beside Mr. Benedict and leaned back against the staglamite. "'You should feel all these pinched,' said Mr. Benedict, and he very casually, as if adjusting a cufflink on Eskew's sleeve. He slipped the open handcuff onto Eskew's wrist. The other was still attached to the metal loop and tightened it. "'There, isn't that uncomfortable?' It is a bit constrainive, Eskew murmured, frowning. I mean, constrictual. I mean... He showed off, his expression troubled. We should take them off, said Mr. Benedict. Here, give me the key. Eskew gave Mr. Benedict the key. Leaning forward to obscure Eskew's view, Mr. Benedict slipped the key to Kate, who lost no time in freeing herself and the others. Then Mr. Benedict drew the children away from the staglamite, where Eskew still sat cuffed in the metal loop. Eskew blinked rapidly as if coming awake. He stared at the children and then at Mr. Benedict in perfect bafflement. "'I am sorry, Eskew,' said Mr. Benedict. "'Some part of you must understand that I mean that.' Eskew shook his head violently as if to clear it. His expression darkened. His lip began to quiver. "'But... but you can't be serious. You can't have lied to me.' "'I never did,' said Mr. Benedict. Eskew was stunned. "'But all those other times, you never tried anything. You promised you wouldn't. I even gave you a drop of the truth serum to be sure.' Yes, but I made no such promise this time, Miss Q, nor did I promise to release you. I said only that we should take your handcuffs off, which we should. In a better world in time, I would gladly release you, and I hope to see you again in such just a world and at such a time. You have a bright soul, SQ. I am extremely sorry to leave you in this predicament, but leave you I must. Mr. Benedict turned away with a sorrowful expression. Come, children, we should hurry. Kate hoisted Constance to her back, and together the escaped prisoners made quickly for the passage. Behind them, Eskew sat with his face growing darker and darker, his eyes darting back and forth as he worked through what Mr. Benedict had said. He was plainly trying not to believe what had just happened. "'You hypnotized him?' Constance asked as they hurried up the passage. "'Something like that,' said Mr. Benedict gravely, although much coarser. Persuading him was possible only because he trusted me not to betray his kindness. I've just dealt a terrible blow to the best part of Escubedellian children. We must all hope he recovers.' Mr. Benedict touched Rennie's shoulder. I hope you haven't given up on SQs of the world, Rennie. As you see, there are a great many sheeps in wolves' clothing. If not for SQs' good nature, we'd never have escaped. They were approaching now the cave entrance, from which they could hear an unearthly moaning. It was dawn, and the island's daily wind had risen, and Rennie was just reflecting that they had escaped yet, when the wind's moaning was drowned out by the howl of an anguish echoing through the cave behind them. Eskew had finally accepted the reality of his situation, and furious outrage, he screamed after them. "'You're just like Mr. Curtin said. I believe you, Mr. Benedict. I trusted you. I should have known. I should have known!' At the cave entrance, Mr. Benedict stopped to look back. Perhaps it was a result of his exhaustion, or perhaps it was because he was the direct cause of Eskew's suffering, but his expression was as mournful as any of the children have ever seen. "'If only,' he began, but he never finished his thought— for that moment, he fell asleep. Sticky spared Mr. Benedict a vicious knock on the head by being in his way when he fell. Thus, it was Sticky who suffered the knock, bruising his forehead hard on the ground as he fell with Mr. Benedict on top of him. Tucking free, he gently rolled Mr. Benedict onto his back and resettled the sleeping man's spectacles before resettling his own. He shook Mr. Benedict's arm. Wake up, Mr. Benedict, wake up! Eskew's house had stopped abruptly as they started, and the only sound now was the moaning of the wind and Sticky's entreaties as the others looked anxiously on. 
Mr. Curtin and McCracken had been gone at no time at all, and they'd forgotten something and came back. Randy cast a nervous glance out beyond the cave. Dawn may have broken, but there was no sunshine. Gray clouds scuttered low over the mountain, and, just as Constance had predicted, a fine gray mist hung over everything, swirling in the wind like smoke. "'He isn't waking up,' Sticky said, patting Mr. Benedict's cheek. "'Uh-oh,' said Constance. "'This can happen when he's really worn out. Sometimes we can't wake him for hours.' "'Well, he surely has exhaustion right now as he's ever been,' Sticky said. He looked up at Rennie. "'This isn't good.' "'Let's see if we can fashion a stretcher,' said Rennie. "'We can't afford to wait. We need to get to that bay forest.' "'What about number two? Kate protested. "'Our best chance of helping her now is to get to the forest. "'Like you said, that's where Milligan expected us to go, "'so that's where we should look for him. "'If he isn't there, maybe his friends will be, "'and we can get them to help us. "'But there's no chance of any of that if we're caught. "'We need to move.' "'Move, of course, was a word with a great natural appeal to Kate, "'and she was instantly swayed to Rennie's perspective. "'Still, she doubted the boys could handle the other end of the stretcher "'all the way to the bay, even taking turns, "'and there was also Constance to consider.' What we need is a sledge. We can drag Mr. Benedict and Constance both. I'll be right back. She sprinted down the passage into the cavern. The others were still trying to rouse Mr. Benedict when Kate returned. She was dragging the table which had been covered with tools and equipment. With the help of the tools, her bucket, and her army knife, which Mr. Kern had left on the table, she removed the table legs and reattached them lengthways to act as a crude runners. She had also stripped the wiring from several floodlights and fashioned lead lines with grips on which to pull the sledge. It was quite a makeshift contraption, but no less remarkable for the speed with which Kate had assembled it. "'I wanted to bring those smelling salts,' Kate said, seeing Mr. Bendix was still asleep. "'But SQ had them in his pocket, and I thought it was best not to go near him. "'He was glaring at me like he wanted to wring my neck.' They hoisted Mr. Bendix onto the sledge. Then Constance climbed on and held him steady while the others grabbed the lines and yanked to test them. The metal rudders made an awful scratching, grinding sound on the rocks. But with Kate and the boys pulling, the sledge moved fairly quickly.' Satisfied, Kate said, I need to find the easiest route down, and she hurried off to scale the peak above the cave, leaping from boulder to boulder as if she were on one of the island's resident mountain goats. In no time, she stood high above her friends, scanning the eastern side of the island with her spyglass. She quickly determined the best route. First, a short and at the northwesternly descent to a prominent goat path led almost all the way down the mountain, then slantwise across a long gravel slope, giving a wide berth as possible to treacherous bluffs. And finally, across the black rock plain to the bay forest, which from here appeared a dark shadow in the general grayness. Kate looked for any sign of Million, but found none. The forest, the bay, and the ocean were beyond, lost in the shroud of mist. Far below, Rennie was looking up at Kate, anxious to hear her verdict, when a curious feeling came over him. He wasn't sure what it was. He stared and stared, trying to place it. Kate stood silhouetted against the gray, cloud-scattered sky, wind flapping her ponytail behind her. Cliff swallows, heedless of the damp, parted in and out of holes in the rocks around her, and high above them circled a bird of prey, no doubt contemplating which swallow would continue its breathcates. Meanwhile, dark clouds raced overhead as if on a film strip running the fast motion, and these combined with the fluttering of swallows and circling of a larger bird made Rennie's stomach twist with vertigo. Yes, vertigo. That must be the curious feeling. Or... No, Rennie wasn't satisfied with that answer. What was this feeling then? It almost seemed much like deja vu, as if he'd experienced something very much like this before. Kate scrambled back down to report. It's going to be awfully hard, she concluded, after describing the route. I think we'll take at least two hours to get to the forest, maybe three, depending on how much you boys can pull. That's if we don't get, have an accident at going down the mountain. She reached back to retire ponytail, which had come loose during her climb. And there's something else. "'What's that?' asked Rennie, sensing bad news. 
I don't see how we're going to avoid being spotted. If they find number two, they'll come back here and discover we're gone. In which case, Kraken and Curtin are sure to climb up and take a look around just like I did. If they don't find her, they'll keep circling the island on their salamander looking for her. Either way, as best as I can figure it, they're almost certain to see us crossing that rocky plain. We're going to be completely exposed for a long time. We'll have a big head start, so we might outrun them. But then what? Constance said. Don't know where we are, and we can't even be sure there's help waiting for us. Rennie rubbed his temples. Constance was right, of course. And if McCracken's prediction was accurate, then two of the other ten men will be awake by then, and possibly Martina as well. There will be an awful lot of sharp pencils flying around that forest, and plenty of legs to chase down fleeting children. Maybe we should find a place to hide and wait for Mr. Benedict to wake up, Sticky said. He'll know what to do. Kate shook her head. He might sleep for hours. We need to figure this out ourselves. By ourselves, Kate meant mostly Rennie, and she and the others instinctively turned to him now. Rennie frowned. He was trying hard to figure something out, but his mind kept nagging him with a strange feeling of deja vu. What was it he had been reminded of? He'd been looking at Kate and the sky and the circling hawk. Wait, had it been a hawk? He started and looked up at the sky. No, not a hawk. A perjuring falcon. Kate, look there. Is that falcon? Why, it's Madge, Kate exclaimed. She took out her whistle and blew it. The falcon streaked down out of the sky, landing on Kate's wrist, just as he had finished tugging on her protective leather glove. Good girl, Madge, Kate said, stroking the bird's feathers. I'm so sorry I don't have any treat to give you. I'll have owe you one. A small leather pouch was tied to Madge's leg. Kate hastily undid the clasp and took out the letter. It's from Cannibal. The children all gathered close to Reed. Dear Kate, how we hope this finds you. We know you're in danger and I'm writing as quick as I can to tell you of our situation and to see how we may help. In any case, all the details are important. I'll give you all I have. Last night we were hiding in the forest, anxiously awaiting your appearance, when we heard an explosion. Soon after that, number two stumbled out of a mountain tunnel into our view. She'll be all right, but at the time she was in such a condition we felt obliged to carry her to the skiff, our landing boat, and then to the shortcut for bandages. She protested loudly, much too loudly in fact, as her hearing had been affected by the explosion. She was bit out of her head too, but it was clear enough that she believed you to be in danger, and that she'd gone looking for you in the tunnel only to find herself cut off, and quite battered by rocks. When the entrance blew, she insisted we leave her and go find you children. But this would have contradicted Milligan's instructions, and we dared not risk upsetting his plans, even if Number Two's injuries hadn't required immediate attention. She's safely bandaged up now, though, and has fully recovered her senses. It was her idea to send Madge with a note, and now she tells me I'm taking too long. So let me hurry on. We're aboard the shortcut, a few miles out to sea. Our plan was to return immediately to the forest, but we've run into difficulty. The skiff's motor was damaged on shoals as we left the bay. There was a horribly tricky tide, and the skiff is now quite noisy and painfully slow. We worry that using it might endanger you by calling attention to the bay. Milligan advised that we must be stealthy above all else. Is this still the case? Send word, Kate, and let us know what we should do. Things to consider. Captain Nolan, per Milligan's directions, contacted the Royal Navy at dawn, mere minutes ago as I write. But their patrol boats may not arrive for some time. The captain can't bring the shortcut too close to the island, for fear of grounding her. But in the skiff, we can reach the bay shore in two hours at most. We await you there, come for us as you think best. Just tell us where to look. We're counting on Madge to find you with her sharp eyes. When you send her back, just say frog food, and she'll fly straight to me. I've been feeding her those steak bits ever since we took her aboard. Do hurry, Kate, and send your reply. Cannonball, Joe Shooter. The moment he finished reading, Rennie began to pace. What he really felt like doing was crying into a ball. The letter should have been encouraged him. 
But under the circumstances, it was heartbreaking. If they sent Madge right away with a reply, and if everything went exactly as hoped, the slow and noisy skiff would reach the bay just as the children arrived. But Kate was right. They would almost certainly be spotted crossing that rocky plain. The salamander, then, would be hot on their trail, and Milligan had said the salamander was very fast on land and water both. Even if they made it to the skiff, well, a damaged skiff will be easy pickings. They would be snatched up by Mr. Kern's crew long before they reached the shortcut. The others were all groaning now, having slowly come to understand what had distressed Rennie right away. There was no way out of this. At least number two is safe, said Sticky gloomily. That's something, anyway. The others nodded but said nothing. They were all relieved number two was safe. Her good news was that their bad news. Though, for Mr. Kern and his tinmen, not finding her in the western woodland, would continue to circle the island. That made it even more likely the children would be intercepted before they reached the bay. Rennie glanced down at Mr. Benedict's sleeping face, frowned, and went back to pacing. "'Maybe we should try to hide,' said Constance. "'Those patrol boats will come eventually, right? Maybe they'll get here in time to save us.' "'We'd have to be awfully lucky,' said Kate. "'I say we run for it and hope for the best. Milligan's probably in the forest, remember? If we can just get to him, he can help us.' Sticky was feverishly polishing his spectacles. "'What do you think, Rennie? Should we run for it or hide?' Rennie gritted his teeth. "'What did he think?' It would be hard to hide everyone for the ten men for long, and even if the patrol boats arrived soon and sent their crews ashore, Rennie doubted their chance against Mr. Kern's group of necessities, especially since the ten men had the salamander. But running? Rennie's mind returned to the skiff. Noisy, Cannonball said, so they couldn't even hope to avoid detection in the heavy gray mist. And unlike Kate, Rennie didn't count on Milligan's being able to help them. No, hiding seemed the better option, although it was nearly helpless one, and although... Rennie paused in his pacing. He did see one other option. It had seen it from the very beginning, in fact, but he had kept shoving it aside. If it worked, it was their best chance of escape. But if it didn't, all would be lost. And for it to work, Rennie must depend upon something he felt could not be depended on. Rennie, Kate prompted, what do you see? Rennie stared at the sleeping figure of Mr. Benedict. Then he had risked his life and limb for them. He had come to the ends of the earth to save him. If Mr. Benedict were right right now, what would he have Rennie do? He felt a tugging on his sleeve. Constance was gazing up into his face. "'You should trust him,' she said. "'Trust him?' Kate repeated. "'Trust who? Rennie, what's she talking about?' Rennie returned Constance's gaze. He knew she was right. He knew what Mr. Benedict would have him do. The question was whether he had the courage to do it. "'Rennie?' "'Give me a pen and paper,' said Rennie, making up his mind. "'I know what we need to do.'" <laughs>